James was in a bad place when his friend Dan called him up with an idea for an adventure. I was in a job in London and I was getting to a point where I was 24, I believe, and I was about to have a midlife crisis. What was the job? I was working in printer sales of all things. So I was selling printers and photocopiers, just cold calling and I hated it completely. So I'm James Moynihan and I am from Surrey, England. And I am Dan O'Liffey and I'm from London. Dan's idea was for him and James to find a deserted island somewhere. Go and survive there, naked, for three weeks. Just like they do on that show, Naked and Afraid, where two people, usually strangers, one man and one woman, get dropped off in the wilderness and trying to not die. Only one difference, though. On Naked and Afraid, there are teams of people, producers, medics, standing by in case of emergency, and helicopters or boats ready to airlift you out if you get bitten by a snake or pass out from dehydration. James and Daniel, on the other hand, were just two college buddies looking for an adventure. Yeah, so I've got a YOLO tattoo. We watched quite a lot of survival shows, so we're talking Bear Grylls, Naked and Afraid. (laughs) This was like our kind of research, well mine anyway. A lot of YouTube. A lot of YouTube. After months of planning, which meant calling up random administrators of Pacific Island nations and getting denied entry to every deserted island they could find, James and Dan settled on the jungles of Malaysia. Because one, you can actually fly into the country. And two, the jungles looked pretty cool on Google Earth. The funniest memory like I have is trying to get through the airport. So we brought the airline ticket and we then booked it for a month later to come back from Malaysia. And that was the hardest conversation I've ever had with my mum because I told her that I was doing this jungle trip and that in four weeks' time I needed to be picked up from the airport, but there was a possibility that I might not come back alive. So I had to sit her down and say, if you've not heard from me in five weeks, I'm dead. (laughs) And then I was like, can you give me a lift to the airport? Do you only live once? You only live once. Because you do only live once. From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation. Philosophy in story form. Recording from Vassar College, here's Barry Lamb. A few months ago, the philosopher Nick Riggle, who was on the show last season, called me up and said he was meditating on YOLO. You only live once, and its predecessor, Carpe Diem, or Seize the Day. You know those cliched bits of justification that people give for making highly risky decisions that, even when successful, don't amount to anything more than a fleeting warm memory? He issued me a challenge. Make an episode about YOLO. This is the result of that challenge. The first thing I did was put out a Google alert everywhere on the internet where people cited YOLO as their reason for doing something. And you'd think there'd be some killer stories, but mostly I found financial planners blaming YOLO for why millennials don't save for retirement, which is part of what makes YOLO paradoxical, actually. On the one hand, the wisest thing you're supposed to do in life is be forward-looking and delay gratification. And yet, there's almost universal disdain for people who shun YOLO, who live for safety. In 2015, some internet people tried to issue a response to YOLO. They called it YODO, you only die once. It never took off. People shut that down quickly. 
Anyway, today I'm bringing you some YOLO stories weaved with Nick Riggle's meditations on YOLO. We're going to follow Daniel and James and their attempt at surviving the Malaysian jungle. I got some stories from listeners, and we interview people on the street and ask how they would live if they found out that they had more than one life. What if they had two, or three, or an infinite number? Did it really matter to their life decisions that we only live once? Turns out, not really. This is the last episode of season three, and it's a fun one. Thanks for listening to all 10 episodes of this first year we're here at Slate. Stay tuned until the end to hear some important news about season four of Hi-Fi Nation, and stay subscribed. We have big plans. You know, YOLO, you only live once and this just might be it. How would you describe the person who doesn't live like YOLO? They're scared, intimidated, closed-minded. Do you hang out with people like that? I do, and then you turn them right around. (laughs) You know what YOLO means, what you only live once means, but what does it mean to you? It means seize every opportunity that you can and don't regret anything. What do you think this risk-averse person is missing out on? Like, what are they missing? Oh my gosh, life. That's all, life is all about risk and- and You think they're not happy? Doing things that scare you. You don't think they're happy? Yeah, I don't think they're happy. Why, why is that? Why are risk-averse, frightened people who, like, I'm going to be safe? they stay in their shell, and they don't try things that I think that they really want to try. I feel like when you overcome what you're scared of, it makes you happier, it makes you grow, it makes you a better person. It makes you who you are supposed to be. Who you're supposed to be, exactly. Say it with me. YOLO. Philosopher Nick Riggle, former pro skater, now professor at the University of San Diego. You only live once. Annoying in form and content, YOLO is a yodel-adjacent call for idiocy that induces a layered cringe. The rapper Drake, who's often credited with coining the term in his 2011 song The Motto, apologized for his part in popularizing it. I sincerely apologize, he said in an opening monologue for Saturday Night Live. I did not know your annoying friends and co-workers would use it so much. Urban Dictionary's top definitions of YOLO include, in addition to the douchebag's mating call, the dumbass's excuse for something stupid that they did, also one of the most annoying abbreviations ever. But there's a grain of truth behind the extremes and idiocies that YOLO connotes. When we contemplate the thought that this is our only life, the only one that we'll ever have, and the one that when it's gone, it's absolutely gone forever, we think that we should live a certain way. Take the plunge. Quit your bullshit job. Try new and thrilling things. And the idea isn't that you should be risky every once in a while or that you should give vitality and verve a try. It's really the idea that you should be a certain kind of person with a certain sensibility and style. One who has you only live once on the tip of their tongue, who embraces life with a spirit of adventure and openness to risk and uncertainty. But recent trends take You Only Live Once far beyond waltzing, social climbing, and even soap operatic drama to next-level absurdity and danger. On September 12, 2012, the rapper Erwin McInnes, a.k.a. Inky, a.k.a. Jules, tweeted this, Drunk AF, going 120, drifting corners, hashtag f*** it, YOLO. Shortly thereafter, the car he was in ran a red light and crashed into a wall. He died along with the four other people in the car. When we separate YOLO from the extremes, the annoyances, the ironies, 
we're left with a thought that really does seem intimately related to motivation and action. Simple reflection on our one and only life can be enough to send us frenzied into the uncertain world. Why? What is the connection between the thought of having only one life and embracing life in all of its precarious glory? The world contains only one playable Stradivarius guitar, the Sabianari of 1679. Basically, no one plays it. It's worthy of museum protection, handled with the utmost concern and played only on very rare occasions by caring masters. This makes it puzzling why You Only Live Once isn't used to inspire the exact opposite thought. If my life were like the Sabianari, then you might think I should be a hypochondriac, extremely risk-averse, and at least mildly agoraphobic. You only live once, after all, so don't take too many risks. In fact, be extra careful. Let's call this the preservationist objection. Here's the objection. The thought that you only live once motivates the exact opposite of risky behavior. Life is precious, fragile, it's rare. So if you only live once, then you should be extremely risk-averse. We landed in Kuala Lumpur the day before. We've got a taxi across the whole country. We wake up, I think it was around about four o'clock the next morning, and we get a taxi to the edge of where Dan has sort of Google Earthed, thinking this will be the start of our trek into the jungle. The first day is a key day here, yeah? So we've gone out, we've brought one machete between us. We get there, and as far as we could see, what we thought might be jungle had been cut down and plantation farms of palm oil trees had been put in its place. So what we thought were trees from looking on Google Earth weren't the trees we were looking for. But we decided, right, let's trek. Let's try and find the jungle. There's a lake somewhere we know from having maps and we've got printed out versions of the maps. We trek for about 12 hours. Yeah. 12 hours, yeah. But we didn't take any water. So we can sort of work out that there might be some kind of rainforest in the distance. But then night comes along. Out there it goes from being light to dark almost instantly. And then once it turns dark, the heavens open up and it just rains and it rains and it rains. It rains all night. So we're under this sort of bush where we're going to try and keep the heat in and we're going to try and get some sleep. Dan at this point, yeah, in the dark, is cutting down bushes to put over us. Trying to make some kind of shelter uh, when it's pouring down already. Uh, it's like thundering and lightning. Uh, and I'll go in a very stupid fashion with the machete to put it into the ground in a very like Rambo's type way. So I get it and I stab it into the ground. And all of a sudden I hear <laughs> And then obviously it hits the ground and then my hand just slides right down it. And he swears and he says, oh, I've jumped up and Dan has cut his hand with the machete to the point where I can see muscle, bone, we can't really bandage it up because of the amount of rain, it will just get damp, it will get infected. So we managed to get some super glue that was meant to be for the camera equipment, yeah? We figured, you know, use the super glue, put it into my hand, just to create a ba barrier. Whilst it does work on cuts, it's only on small cuts that that's gonna work on. It was a cut on the palm of my hand, which meant whenever that opens, it's just gonna open it further. 
and we're trying to push like his hand back together at the same time super glue it and it stung like hell the benefit was that there was no light so i couldn't see how bad my hand was for a lot of it so i just kept my hand closed and just kind of ignored it we are then in this rain under this bush a few more hours and then we decide that we're not going to get any sleep so we're going to trek in the dark through this sort of palm tree farms and we do that don't we yeah and this goes on and then the sun rises it's beautiful but we carry on going and we're going for maybe another five hours yeah and we're going up and down these little valleys up and down and then Dan slips on a rock and goes bang straight on his hand. And it just went straight into like some dirty mud or it, it smelled really bad. And at that point, like I knew there's no way I could keep this clean and it's best to leave now whilst my hand's still kind of intact and moving rather than stay out there and then it get infected. And he went awfully white. Um, I was fading, James had to help me kind of I was like trailing far behind because I was just absolutely gone and out of it the heat kind of hit me hard and in the end we found we see a road in the distance that's obviously used for like logging trucks and then this logging truck doesn't speak a word of English this guy and I'm just like we just need water because we've now gone roughly about 36 hours no water you know, and then this guy drives us to like this little old woman's shack and we managed to get water so we I drink the water and it goes in and comes straight back out because I was that dehydrated that my body was starting to sort of shut down from the the loss of water. We then get back to the city. Dan gets his hand taped up. We're in a hotel, so that's the first day. Yeah. Now most people here, yeah, in their right mind will be like, right, we're done. We're not doing this again. And we're in this hotel room after one day and we go. We go back out again. We come this far. Hi-Fi Nation will return after these messages. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Do, do you live your life according to YOLO? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, so I'll give you an example. Yeah. I really want one of those electric skateboards. Yeah. But. So you feel like. Uh, but let me. I don't want. I can't mention names. But there's somebody out of the four of us that won't allow that, and it's none of us three here. <laughs> and it's because she's afraid I'll get hurt, and you know the job, and you know. So. So you think if you got, if you think if you got one of those skateboards, that would be like expressing the Yolo spirit. You know why? I, I can tell you. I have a great life. Yeah. I. I'm retired from the military, I got a good job, been married for 25 years, have a great family, great daughter, so I have no reason to uh, be overly risky. Maybe you only live once reminds us not of irreplaceability, but of mortality. 
What good is carpe diem without a little memento mori? The fact that you only live once, combined with the fact that you're not immortal, means that you're guaranteed a very final ending. But then why should you only live once move us to do things that have a decent chance of causing our death? One answer is that a YOLO death is somehow preferable to a non-YOLO death. Using Google Earth again, because that's the way we roll, we decided to trek into the middle of Malaysia, so we got another taxi to a place called Kuala Tahan on it. We trekked for another day and a half. James and Dan get to their destination, which the internet says is one of the oldest jungles in the middle of Malaysia. They strip off their clothes, put some GoPro cameras around their heads, and have a go at not dying for the next 20 days. It just absolutely poured down and it's the middle of the night, you're getting cold, you're shivering next to this guy, we're both naked as well. And we're in the mud, there's ants biting us, there's there's mosquitoes at us as well. And I woke up and I was freezing cold. To the point where we thought I might have to go, didn't we? Yeah. Like, through hypothermia. We had black bags for all the camera equipment, so like a bin liner, put it over myself and do exercise to heat my own body up. Because I was just thinking, Ah, oh, so this, you know like when you see in the newspaper, oh, this person went out to the backcountry and died. I was like, oh no, we're those idiots now who are going to die. The enthusiasms of You Only Live Once are not limited to death-defying Superman stunts. They extend to our life choices and projects. There were times in my early 20s when nothing made me feel more alive than playing guitar. Singing with friends, writing songs, playing shows with the band, I felt like there couldn't be anything better to do with my life, with a life, than that. Sometimes when I look at my dusty guitar, I really wonder whether something died in me, something I should have nurtured. What did I lose? Maybe it's because I'm busy with things like this. I suppose that when all is said and reckoned, I really care more about stuff like this than anything sung or strummed. But if that's true, it's sad. If you could experience the force with which my younger self envisioned a lifetime of musical love, then you'd be a little sad too. It's a sadness that makes me want to seize the day and pick up my guitar. It's almost as if I want to live twice, equally in love with words and music. The fact that I can't, because I will die, is almost depressing. Reflecting on it doesn't exactly make me want to seize the day. It makes life seem like it's such that we can't live only once as much as we might want to which makes its motivation seem like it can't deliver what it demands, like there's too few seasons to make the day worth seizing. This is the dark side of YOLO that no one tweets about. Yeah, let's just get to it. Like, tell me your YOLO story. So I was working at a tech company in San Francisco, but it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life or existence. So I quit and moved to Japan and became a translator. Was it like a really well-paying job that you had to give up a lot for? I mean, it's not like I was an engineer, but I had never made money like that before, so it felt like a big deal. And when you think about like stocks and stuff like that too, then it's like, oh, maybe if I hung on longer, I could make a pile of money. But the first time I visited here, I remember being in like a taxi and like probably somewhere in Shinjuku and just looking out the window. It was very like a lost in translation moment. Like, why don't I live here? And then I decided to answer the question and say, oh, I do. <laughs> I think the biggest, the biggest new YOLO thing 
on my mind is um, I came out as transgender recently and trying to decide if I want to go on hormones or not. So that would be a one heck of a leap. I don't even know what the YOLO thing would say about it, right? Because like YOLO is really about risk or no risk, right? Yeah, I think that's that's the biggest thing for me, right? Like I could go on hormones and hate it. And then, and then what? Because <laughs> you do only live once. <laughs> This is the most interesting interpretation of YOLO for me. It's not pointing out that life ends. It's pointing out that life has only one path. When you make a decision, it's done. You can only miss out on the choice you didn't make. You can't live two lives at once and enjoy both. That's a tragedy and a lot of pressure. What's supposed to break a tie? Maybe a little philosophical thought experiment would help. Do you feel like if you had uh, another life to live after this, like another human life, would you would you do anything differently? I don't think so. If you had a second life, how would you live that one? Just like this. <laughs> Just like this. You know, it's worked for 25 years, so I wouldn't risk changing it. You know your second life is coming up. What are you going to do in that one? YOLO this life. YOLO, YOLO next life. But I guess, in a way, we do live twice. Our lives have different stages, and now that I'm no longer young, maybe there are different YOLO standards that apply to me. The 20-year-old options are different from those of someone staring at 40, and I had a YOLO strong youth as a pro skater, flipping, spinning, grinding, competing, and generally YOLOing around the world. When I look back on this, I'm glad, even proud that I did what I did, and I made numerous apparently unsound decisions, high school dropout, single-minded pursuit of a necessarily short-lived career, made money that I spent on I honestly don't even know. But what should I do now to live up to the fact that I have just this one life? Drink a third pint of beer? Hike a smallish mountain? YOLO's voice is louder and clearer when risk and adventure are easy. Maybe all it does now is whisper, hey bud, why don't you plug in that bread machine? Maybe part of the idea behind the thought that you only live once is that if you had two lives instead of one, then it wouldn't be so bad if you sat one of them out. But if I did have two whole lives to live, I'm not sure I would like to skimp on either. I would definitely feel bad about living neither of them, but I would also feel like I should live both, at least a little. Our question still stands. Even if we had two lives on Earth, why should either of them embrace or even entertain the YOLO ethos? I might like to use one of them to be an accountant and the other to be a priest. It would be interesting to compare their subtle pleasures, their differing senses of achievement. They'd present different challenges, involve me in radically different communities, and connect me to divergent sources of inspiration, creativity, curiosity, and passion. Maybe the connection between death and you only live once isn't straightforward. Perhaps it goes by way of the popular thought that life is, in a sense, absurd. The thought of our death reminds us that we're but the speckiest of specks on a speck of a planet in one specky galaxy among many billions. When I take a bird's eye or cosmic perspective on my life, I begin to doubt the seriousness with which I tend to regard it. The perspective reveals an almost comical gap between the importance I attach to my life and the utter nothing that my life will amount to no matter what I do. And yet, I continue to act like what I do matters. 
I worry about not playing guitar. I wonder if I ought to use my bread machine. I think that I should love my one and only life. The fact that I continue in this way, despite my avowed cosmic insignificance, is absurd. To use an example from Thomas Nagel, as modified by J. David Velleman, it's as if my pants fell down as I was being knighted, and I remain utterly poised for the ceremony, pants around my ankles. But come to think of it, isn't that kind of a YOLO thing to do? To own and embrace such an unpredictable moment? Pants totally fell down as I was being knighted. Didn't lose eye contact with the king. Hashtag medieval AF. This, of course, doesn't explain the connection between such a perspective and risky or adventurous action. But it sets the connection in relief by revealing another dimension of the preservationist challenge. The perspective we take on our lives when we're impressed by the thought that we only live once is the same perspective that might alienate us from our lives by showing us that we take them far too seriously. Why should that inspire an embrace of life rather than the attitudes and responses we commonly associate with the feeling that life is absurd, existential despair, or ironic detachment? It turns out that if you're trying not to die with your best mate in the jungle for 18 days, the most accurate characterization of your experience is boring. Dan and James pretty much got used to being rained on all night. They built their shelter sturdily enough that it didn't need any more work. And hunting or gathering, that just uses up energy you don't have to spare. So you just sit around, day after day. All the best moments were just like us at night talking about food. We would just describe to each other just like noodle bread, which is like noodles and bread, because it's just so sloppy and just like it's hot food. That's your entertainment for the evening. <laughs> and it's like, it's what gets you through it. Just like imagining all the foods you're going to eat when you leave. We ate quite a lot of bugs. Like we'd sit there and every ant that would come past and sort of play a game like, oh, you'll do. And you'd put like ants into your mouth and they'd bite like the top of your, your mouth before you could actually chew them. You'd have to be very quick and you'd be like, like that. Uh, lot, lots of beetles, worms. Because we were blacking out at some point. Around uh, about days... 14 maybe onwards our vision would just go to black and like all the noise would just go to like a mute sound Dan was sort of quite persistent in the fact that he wasn't going to leave if I was going to leave so (laughs) we could have left each other and then never seen each other again well I don't actually believe that we only live once okay yeah I believe that we've already lived a couple times at least so you're like on number four Number like 47. No, that many. Okay, so we have even more questions for you. Yeah, yeah. Right, so uh, tell me how that thinking affects how you live your life here. Man, like it takes a while to figure it out because you're born, you don't remember shit. But then you keep going, you start to remember shit. You start to realize like, oh, I've lived before. If you live before, that means you died before. So you ask yourself, are you really scared to die? For me, the answer was no. Maybe Nietzsche has an answer. He seems to be the 19th century's chief yoloer. He was a sort of nihilist and so thought that life was absurd in a sense, but that didn't stop him from thinking that we should embrace life. He did not like the idea of living twice, of a heavenly and eternal afterlife. He firmly believed that you only live once and that it was important to take this seriously. But in a clever move, he evokes YOLO vibes by combining the idea of eternal life with the idea of life on Earth. 
He has us imagine that we have only one type of life, and we live it over and over again. So you have infinitely many lives, but they all have the same character or description. You do exactly the same thing in each life. If you're a grocery store clerk in one, you're a clerk in all. Nietzsche thought that if we imagined the eternal recurrence, as he called it, of our life vividly enough, we might be moved to adopt a carpe diem-laden attitude toward life, passionately affirming it in all its glory. The revelation of life's eternal recurrence is supposed to get us to affirm life by getting us to reflect on whether we're living the life that we would want to live over and over again. Nietzsche's idea seems to be that contemplating life's eternal recurrence will get me to seek, either in my past or in the future, a tremendous moment that would move me to praise as a god the being who informed me of this fate. So you gotta tell me your YOLO story. First, just tell me who you are. My name is Liz. I'm an attorney in Seattle. It was this website called Gaia Online. One of the conceits of the site is that you have an avatar that you dress up. They're anime. And I just sort of logged in on a whim because some of my friends were using it and ended up staying because there was a, a sub forum about politics. I liked talking about politics. And I met people there and made some online friends. His avatar was a girl, and he never corrected anyone that he was not a girl because you don't always expect to make really lasting friendships on these websites, so why? Many years pass. I'm in law school instead of undergrad, and we're watching movies together by streaming them at the same time, you know, having online conversations still, um, but I still think he's a she. When I was at this point where I thought, oh, is this person a woman and I love them? Are we just really good friends? Am I not straight anymore? Like, it was really confusing. I finally said, look, I have some suspicions. He came clean. Uh, so we met. I was in upstate New York. He was in Vancouver, Canada. And what do you think of him physically the first time you saw him? He's a lot taller than me. I mean, I thought he was like really cute, really trim and tall. But yeah, I was like super attracted to him. And eventually I just said, why don't you move in with me? And then we can talk about getting married and stuff like that. And this part is actually a bit of a blur because he agreed that would be a good idea. That was right when everything really sped up to get married. I'm Emily. I graduated college recently. Yeah, so you have a YOLO story for me. I do, yes. Me and my friend went out for drinks on her birthday. We happened to go out to a place that had horse decor. And she mentioned that she would love one day to go to the Kentucky Derby. So I said, well, why don't we do it this year? And of course, this year was two weeks away, 12 hour road trip, but we decided, you know what? Why not live a little? And we decided to go for the cheapest hotel noticed some interesting stains and so then the day of the derby it starts raining and it does not let up it was the wettest derby in history we go place a bet did you win the bet or did you lose the bet uh ended up that we won yeah you did win yeah we did win our horse came in first so there you go Gosh, how much money did you win? Um, it was only a $10 bet. So it was only like, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Minnesota nice. There you go. You're the, yeah, you're the least risky YOLOer that I've ever heard. $10. There you go. 
But I'm not sure why Nietzsche's idea should work, why considering life's eternal recurrence should move me to affirm any sort of life. One of my favorite movies is The Big Lebowski. It's great. It's funny, original, profound, has unforgettable characters and really great dialogue. I've seen it probably three or four times, and maybe I'll watch it a few more times in my life, or, or maybe not. Even the best films aren't ones that I necessarily want to watch over and over again. One reason I don't really care if I watch The Big Lebowski again is that I'm still in touch with my sense of its value. I smile at the memory of Walter admonishing Donnie. I identify with the image of California that the film evokes, even in memory. If these feelings, this complex sense of the film's value, went away, then I would, as soon as I realized that, want to watch it again. I think I might feel the same way about my life. The macho man Randy Savage once signed my Slim Jim. I hugged Topanga from Boy Meets World. I was ranked fourth in the world in competitive street skating. I gave all that up to become a philosopher. And look at me now. I love my life. But supposing things stay about as good as they are, I wouldn't want to live it again. It's certainly possible that I've missed something essential about Nietzsche's idea. But consider more generally how odd it would be if the idea that you live only once could have the same motivational effect as the idea that you live an infinite number of times. This suggests that numbers have nothing to do with it. You only live once reminds us that we have only one life, but it also reminds us that we have a life. It reminds us that we're alive. You only live once doesn't work by reminding us that we're unique, irreplaceable, mortal, that we must always use what we have, and so on. If anything, it tells us that we're alive, and it emphasizes a particular understanding of what it means to be alive. Reflecting on the fact that you only live once gets us to realize that we're not really alive unless we actively appreciate the life we're living. And living is so much more than having a heartbeat. I think it was two days before our flight. We left the jungle and we trekked out and it took, what, two days? Yeah. And then we just waited on this road for a coach to come along. And the coach allowed us on for free. And it drove us to this tourist spot that was like a lot further. We knew where it was in the heart of Koala Tahan. And then that's where we had our first first meal. What does it feel like to have a meal? The rest of us don't know anything about what that feels like. Yeah, it, like, it filled up our stomach so quickly and your eyes are way bigger than your stomach. And you make yourself feel very sick. It's the worst meal choice we've ever, I've ever made in my life. And we decided to have spicy satay. And after having not eaten and your palate, it was so spicy. It was the worst choice I've ever made in my life. I was getting so excited to like drink a fizzy drink and eat this food that I was like, my, my plate was shaking and it dropped all the food on the ground and I had to get some more. As the proto-YOLOing Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau tells us, to live is not to breathe, it's to act. It's to make use of our organs, our senses, our faculties, of all the parts of ourselves which give us the sentiment of our existence. The man who has lived the most is not he who has counted the most years, but he who has most felt life. Men have been buried at 100 who died at their birth. The whole journey on the coach, we didn't speak to each other at all. We both sort of put our headphones in and we'd been in nature, not listen to music, not listen to anything at all. 
I'm telling you now, music when you've not listened to it and all you've had to listen to is nature and this guy, yeah, it's phenomenal. There are songs that I didn't even know I liked before and that just brought tears to my eyes listening to these music. Rousseau thinks that living is not just having a heartbeat. It's a kind of action. It's living your life in a way that makes you feel alive, attending, savoring, listening, examining and exploring in ways that inspire the sentiment of our existence and that keep us in touch with the richness and full value of life. And this is where the preservationist objection fails. The preservation of life might be responsive to life's preciousness and rarity, and we can be moved to act in ways that realize those values. But preciousness and rarity are a small fraction of the value of being alive. Attempts to avoid the kinds of challenge, adventure, and thrill that make us feel alive and that keep us in touch with life's full value tend to offend life by making it routine, subdued, fearful, predictable, close-minded, or non-experimental. The full feeling of life is not stoked in these ways. To grasp that you only live once is to grasp the significance of being alive, which is so much more than maintaining a heartbeat. Rousseau suggests something even stronger, that there's no real point to having a heartbeat unless you're living. If that's right, then the preservationist life is merely a way of ensuring that your heart doesn't stop, which is either grossly inferior to living or entirely pointless. When I got back to England, I was just like, in my head, I was just like, on cloud nine, having achieved just like a great thing, like that kind of changed a lot of my outlook on life. And I think when you make big achievements, you know what I mean? That just makes you just a more positive person and like nothing that, you know, can really phase you anymore because you've already achieved that. You know, what else can you do? What else can't you do? And what you kind of thought you can't do has just gone down to like barely anything. I quit my job knowing that when I come back, I'm going to focus on something that I want to do that will make me happy. Did you think you found you found yourself in the jungle? I want to have said that I've lived and I want an experience that if I was to sit down with grandkids in many years time, that I've got this story to tell about this epic adventure that me and Dan went on and that they'd be like, really, did you do that? And I'd show them like clips and stuff like that. While some people maintain their sense of being alive with little or no help, Others need sturdy reminders, prods, and provocations. But we have to be careful not to go too far in the other direction. The mass media culture surrounding YOLO has encouraged the idea that YOLOers are adventure-seeking fanatics. But it's not essential to the YOLO ethos that we constantly strive for heightened experience, attention, or thrill. Indeed, such constant striving will inevitably become the kind of distorted routine that YOLO advises against. What seems to matter is that we maintain a sense of the contrast between life's inevitable routine, with its repetition, its habit, mechanization, and familiarity, and life's peak offerings. The feeling of life is reliably with us when this contrast is steadily in mind, when the acceptability of daily life is seen in the light of life's more thrilling registers. Nick Riggle, philosopher, former pro skater, professor at the University of San Diego. His book is On Being Awesome, a unified theory of how not to suck. Dan O'Liffey and James Moynihan are looking for people interested in sponsoring even more survivalist adventures of theirs. Dan has biked across the Sahara, walked to the Alps. You can contact and follow Dan on Instagram. He's Dan Banks of Earth, 
Follow James on Instagram. He's James Moynihan, 57. You can find all of this at our website, hifination.org. And thanks to Emily, Liz, and Emily for sharing their stories. As I said earlier, this is the last episode of season three of Hi-Fi Nation. And here's the big news. I and Hi-Fi Nation have received a Whiting Public Engagement Fellowship to produce all of season four, the very first season I'm dedicating to the philosophical foundations of one, just one institution of American life, criminal justice. Between now and next year, I'll be out and about reporting on stories and some of the deepest questions about punishment, deterrence, justice, and moral responsibility in the American legal system. All of that will be brought to you in a serialized series sometime next year. If you want to get a taste of what that's going to be like, episode one and two of this season were the beginnings of that project. In the meantime, you'll get bonus episodes in your feed along with previews and updates. So subscribe now, if you haven't already, to the Hi-Fi Nation feed. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this season. From Vassar College, Barry Lamb signing off. For Slate Podcasts, editorial director is Gabriel Roth. Senior managing producer is June Thomas. Senior producer is TJ Raphael. Visit HiFiNation.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's H-I-P-H-I-Nation.org. Follow Hi-Fi Nation on Facebook and Twitter and at the website for updates on stories and ideas.